the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. All are corrupt and commit abominable acts. There is none who does any good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon us all to see if there is any who is wise, if there is one who seeks after God. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you as we do every time we come together to be here with us and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In 2008, then Prince Charles of Wales, the son of the now recently deceased Queen Elizabeth II, revealed his desire to change something about the official royal title when he took the throne. Now, Elizabeth's full title was Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, of the kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and of her other realms and territories, queen, head of the commonwealth, defender of the faith. That final part of the title, defender of the faith, was first bestowed upon an English monarch in 1517, when Pope Leo X applied it to King Henry VIII, reflecting his position as supreme governor of the Church of England. Charles, though, announced that he would like to change the title from defender of the faith, referring to Christianity, to defender of faith, with no particular referent to what that faith might be in. And to be sure, England has and had become a nation of many faiths, and Charles intends, I'm sure, to make space for all of them, as he should. But there's something notable in this desire, something that took on the form of a great illustration this week. So on Thursday, when Queen Elizabeth died, the now King Charles put out a statement, part of which I'd like to read to you this morning. But listen, I want to be charitable. People, even kings, are, well, human beings. And I don't like my words to be examined too closely, even on my best day. And this is from a statement that was released on the day of his mother's death. The man is grieving, and a nation grieves with him. So while I don't want to put too much weight on the exact words that a man chooses in his grief, I do think that there's something to note in this statement. Not so much something that's included as something that's left out. So here's what Charles wrote on Thursday. During this period of mourning and change, my family and I will be comforted and sustained by our knowledge of the respect and deep affection in which the queen was so widely held. And that's where it ends. I'm sure you see the omission. There's no mention of God. Now, like I said, I don't want to parse his words uncharitably, and I hope and pray that he actually finds his peace and solace in Jesus Christ and in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. But he didn't mention either of those things. The man who would take defender of the faith out of his title will not, at least apparently, 
find comfort and sustenance in God. There are, I've heard, two kinds of people in the world. Everybody says that. But they, whoever they are, break up the two kinds of people in all sorts of different ways. I've heard there are Beatles people and Rolling Stones people. And of course, there are UK people and U of L people. I've even heard that there are Friends people and Seinfeld people, but I refuse to acknowledge that one. There are Frasier people, I'm one of them, and we demand to be recognized. (laughs) Now, in my home life, it breaks down more along food lines. In our house, there are creamy peanut butter people and crunchy peanut butter people, as well as plain bread people and bread with all kinds of crazy seeds on it people. And in the wisdom literature class that Dr. Nicholson is teaching after our worship service each Sunday, we're learning about a biblical way in which there are two kinds of people, wise people and foolish people. And what might be a quick way to distinguish between them? Well, we have a nice shorthand answer here in Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In other words, Wise people submit themselves to the God that actually exists, while fools attempt to usurp God's rightful place, putting themselves on that throne. So two kinds of people in the world, the wise and the fools, those who seek to submit to God and those who seek to be God. But it gets even more interesting than that. See, Psalm 14 is one of those psalms that St. Paul quotes in that famous passage in Romans chapter 3, in which Paul claims that everyone, all the different kinds of people in the world, and for Paul, there are also two kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. Paul says that everyone is guilty of being a fool. No one is righteous, Paul writes. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And he's not done yet. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So despite there being two theoretical groups, the wise and the foolish, it seems that actually in the final analysis, everyone is a fool. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And how does this foolishness manifest itself? What does it look like in the real world? Well, recall Paul from Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them from his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And here we go. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They, these fools, didn't worship God, even though creation itself and their consciences within them made it manifestly clear that God exists. They worshipped not the creator, but creatures, including themselves. They made themselves into creators. And we can see this, if we look closely enough, even in ourselves, the urge to create by ourselves. I mean, this is why Legos and Lincoln Logs and Erector Sets are so popular. We love to create things, virtual reality, cosmetic surgeries, even down to the simplest level. We wake up in the morning and think about what we're going to make of the day. We fondly recall our mothers, our schools, our celebrities, our social media feeds telling us that we can be and do whatever we set our minds to. And so, when the great lie says to us, like the serpent whispered to Eve at the beginning of things, did God really say we are prone to believe it? Probably We find ourselves thinking, it would be better if I were on the throne. If I were in charge, I would run things properly. And so just that quickly, we have become fools, saying in our hearts that there is no God by having installed ourselves in his place. And we're not even at the bottom yet. (laughs) Tragically, That's not even the worst part. Now, sure, anointing yourself as creator will be problematic, hugely so. You'll find that you're not very good at it and that your creations from your created internal life to your familial life, your work life, and every other thing that you create from stem to stern, you'll find that all of your creations fall apart. But the news is worse than that. Because if you're the creator, you have to be the redeemer too. If you're the God, you're not just in charge of making things. You have to be in charge of saving things too. And during those dark nights of the soul, when your own personal creations have all crumbled around you and it becomes impossible to believe that everything is going to be okay and that you can be or do anything that you set your mind to, to whom will you call out? This is the fundamental question of our lives. Who will save me? And when St. Paul in Romans 7 comes face to face with the intractability of his life, he doesn't do the things he wants to do and he keeps on doing the things that he hates, he cries out, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now imagine 
the crushingly bad news that must come to those who have taken the place of God. To them, the cold, empty cosmos might as well be whispering back, no one, you're on your own. You wanted to be the creator, now you be the savior. This is the bad news pregnant in King Charles's statement on Thursday and his hesitance about the God of Christianity. Where are he and his family looking for comfort and for sustenance? Something else, something fleeting, something ephemeral, I guess in the people's good feelings about and respect for the former queen. But that is not going to be good enough. That's not reliable enough. That won't hold you fast. That's ultimately bad news. And it is, in fact, bad news against which we've been given good news to preach. Because, thank God, that is not the answer for us. We actually have a God who actually answers our cries. After Paul makes his strangled and desperate plea, he remembers the answer. Thanks be to God who saves through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want you to listen now to a bit of a telegram that President Harry Truman sent to a newly crowned Elizabeth on the occasion of her father's death in 1952. Here's what Truman wrote. We pray that the God of all comfort will sustain you and keep you and that the King of Kings, under whose ruling hand all nations live, will give you fortitude and courage, strength and wisdom. This is faith in a God who is real, a God who comforts, a God who saves. The whole reason that Jesus' parables in Luke chapter 15, the gospel lesson that we read from this morning, the whole reason they are good news is that the lost sheep and the lost coin have someone to come and find them. They are not in charge of saving themselves. The shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one who has wandered off. The woman cleans her whole house and searches diligently until the coin is recovered. In the same way, our God, the God who really does exist and who is really on the throne, searches diligently for you in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ until you too are brought home. So there are two kinds of people in the world, the wise and the foolish. Another way to say that is that there are those who have a savior and there are those who had better get to work saving themselves. Yet another way to say that is that there are those who are dead in trespasses and sins and those who are reborn in Christ Jesus. And for those of us who are here celebrating our rebirth, let us remember Paul's proclamatory question in Romans 6. How can we, 
who are dead to sin still live in it. Now, he knows that even those of us who have been born again are tantalized by the thought of being our own gods. Maybe we think if we just got another chance, maybe we'll do better next time. We've learned something since then. We're better now. Now we're ready to rule. Paul's firm answer is, no, God forbid it. Absolutely not. Wake up, he seems to be shouting. How can you, who have realized that God is on the throne, now attempt to get back into that seat? You can't. You can never go back there. You who have been made alive must not attempt to put yourself back on the throne. So what can we Christians do? How do we resist this temptation? How do we keep Almighty God on the throne of our lives? Well, in a sense, it's awfully simple. We just continually look to the throne and see that he's sitting there. We continually remind ourselves that God reigns. It's not a complicated story. God is God, and you are not. He is on his throne. We are to fall on our knees before it. He has spoken to us in the scriptures. We are to submit ourselves to his word. Not coincidentally, this is where we start our service every week. We tell the story in the opening acclamation, reminding ourselves that God is king over a kingdom worthy of honor and praise. In the call it for purity, we acknowledge that he is almighty and that he knows all things. We confess that his name is holy and ask that we might properly magnify it. And then, of course, we continue confessing. Confessing and confessing, we confess our sin. We're about to do it in a moment. We confess our faith in the creed. We confess our belief that Jesus Christ himself, holy God, is our all-sufficient Savior. That he lived the life we could not live, died the death that we deserve, and was raised to new life in order to win new life. Reconciliation to that holy God for us. Each one of us for you and for me. And now we celebrate eating the meal that he has prepared for us, confessing that it is only by his mercy and grace that we are alive. By his mercy and grace that we are sustained. So I have good news and bad news. The bad news is that you're not God. You cannot create yourself or the world around you as you see fit. You cannot do or be anything that you set your mind to. You don't get to decide right from wrong. All of that is rebellion. But I have good news too. There is a God. And falling on your knees before his throne and submitting yourself to his word are not the bad news that they sound like to your sinful human ear. Those are good things. Wonderful things. You don't have to decide right from wrong. You do not have to create yourself or the world around you. You don't have to be God. You have a God. 
and his son, Jesus Christ, has saved you. If a fool says in his heart, there is no God, let us rejoice in the wisdom that we have been given. So repent of all the times you've tried to climb back onto that throne. Turn from your wickedness and live and know that the grace, peace, and forgiveness that is available for free on account of Jesus at the foot of the cross is available for you. Jesus Christ is the propitiation, as we say, the perfect sacrificial offering for your sins. He died for the whole world, yes, but personally and sufficiently for you. There is a God. He is the Father of Jesus Christ, who has lived, has died, and has been raised. For me, for you, forever. Amen.